This podcast is supported by VPLA, Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. You're listening to PX75 today. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Peter Jewell. Today, we are interviewing Dr. John Stone, who is a senior lecturer in urban planning within the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Jess. Great to be here. John, can you just give a brief summary of your professional career and what motivated you to get into the field of um, transport planning? Yeah, like many planners in academia and in in practice don't come at it in a very linear fashion. I started my university career uh, a long time ago studying mathematics, but university opened up the natural world to me. I spent a lot of time in the wilderness in Tasmania, and that took me to working in for the Wilderness Society, working in the Franklin River campaign, and and then beyond that, working in a whole range of environmental NGOs. And that, when climate started to become an issue in the late 80s, we focused our attention on cities and the, the, you know, if we were going to protect the natural world, how we organised our cities became absolutely paramount. And at that point, uh, my interest in transport was piqued by the work that Paul Mees was doing at the time. And I really found that that sense that there was something that we could do to change our cities other than you know, rebuilding us at higher densities that, that could get us to where we needed to go. And so I followed that into a career in academia and following how different cities have followed different transport paths over the, the last decades. That, 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 that's fantastic, John. I mean, cities is what we talk about, so this is perfect, a perfect match. Can you tell us a bit about your latest research paper and uh, what are some of the findings? Well, we had a, a quick look at what was happening and what might happen as we emerged from uh, the COVID lockdowns. This was uh, back in the middle of the year when Melbourne was almost silent and we knew that uh, people were leaving public transport uh, and what we could see happening was that as restrictions eased, people would get in their car rather than in a crowded tram. Our experience of being in crowded spaces has just been totally tainted this year and we could see that that was not going to end easily uh, until we had a vaccine and we could, could move around freely again. And so we started to think what would happen if in those places where a lot of people come now or did in 2019 come to work or to socialize or to shop or uh, whatever they were doing in core areas of the city whether it be the cbd or or local hubs and what would happen in those places where public transport now had a, a very high market share what would happen when when if even a small proportion of those trips moved back to cars in, in the post-COVID era. And it became really clear to us very quickly that um, this would create really quick congestion. Uh, the roads into the CBD would get congested. That would cross cause congestion on the cross city routes and so only a small change because you know, the moment you know 70 percent of people going to work in the cbd of melbourne go by public transport so it only takes a small number of the proportion of that traffic to come back to to cars and we're in a in a big big problem so it made us think we have to think very carefully about uh, how we reintroduce 
public transport into people's travel diet as the, um, the lockdowns ease. And so what does that suggest for major public transport infrastructure spending, particularly the CBD-centric spending that we've seen in recent years? Well, the CBD-centric expenditure is really doing a number of things. So I think it, we do need to focus on, on that into the future. It's freeing up um, the resources that can, or the, the public transport that can get people to the regions, to, to Geelong and, and to to the other regional cities. So we, we do need to uh, concentrate on that and things like Melbourne Metro 2 is probably still there, not just for getting people into the CBD, but for making the system work better across the whole city. But we do need to think very carefully about where people are going to want to move. You know, if, as is likely, um, people are, you know, many people who have the ability to, to like, you know, like all of us here, fortunate enough to have jobs where we can work from home some of the time. And for some people, that's proved to be a, a boon and they might want to keep that, particularly if they have, have long commutes. So that means that there's going to be more tra travel in local areas. So we're going to have to think more about how our buses system work. And this is exactly what uh, plans like you know, Plan Melbourne and the 20-minute city have envisaged, that we would be able to live and work in much more um, confined areas of the city that we wouldn't have to travel so far to get to different things. And so, so that's what we really have to focus on. How is, how is the local system going to work as well as finding the ways of um, building the, the, um, the systems for uh, large numbers of people, the mass transit systems, having them staggered so that there's more services in the early morning or the middle of the day or the evening. So we don't just focus on these uh, these peaks because travel will have to be spread much more over the day and over the week. John, we seem to be very much tied to the wheel and spokes approach to public transport, you know, with the, and, you know, our podcast goes to all over the, all over the planet. So we don't want to be too Melbourne centric, but uh, here we seem to have that wheel and spokes approach and with public transport and spend, but what you're suggesting is it's it should be more um, spread out to the consider the local factors um, and not just that tunnel yeah. into yeah that that's that's right? absolutely right, Peter. And I think the the cities that we look to uh, to provide us with the examples of where to go, how to how to build us. A public transport system that can support much more of our, our travel and climate is making that much more essential that we find ways of decarbonising. So to do that, we do need to get the cross-town travel um, much more part of our, our system. And um, most cities which do have good public transport systems have recognised that and they've basically done what the transport theorists call creating the network, creating a network effect, which basically means instead of trying to second guess where people want to go and say, oh, lots of people want to go to the CBD, so we'll make that the focus of our public transport system, we know that people travel all over the city for all sorts of reasons. And 
what people have found is the simplest way to, there is a way to make that efficient and effective, and that is to create the networks that allow people to choose their own journey across the city, much as you do with a car. So if you've got a grid system and you have good connections between the services, then you can choose to go from anywhere to anywhere else. And so that, that means that the fundamental thing that a public transport system has to do is get the frequency and speed up on each leg of the journey, but most importantly, to create the connections between one service and another. And that's where uh, many cities fall down because they ask people what they want to do and they say, we want a, a one-seat ride from A to B. And that's fine for any individual to want that, but collectively we can't do that. We can't make public transport work for every possible journey. So we have to make those connections seamless and cities have done that. And then, and then people do choose to use it for all sorts of purposes that we never even imagined. So John, um, a lot of what we've spoken about so far um, seems to match a lot of the findings and outlooks from that new report that's been released uh, recently from Infrastructure, uh, Infrastructure Australia, sorry, um, titled Inf Infrastructure Beyond COVID. So under flexibility and resilience in that section of the report, it states that COVID-19 related responses demonstrate how infrastructure can be better used, not what new infrastructure could be built. Um, capital not solve everything. Customers, providers, employees and staff flex to deliver much of the change themselves. Do you have any thoughts and suggestions around that? I think that that's recognising what I'm saying before, that, that when the system makes it possible for people to make different choices by making it possible for them to get there to where they want to go in the time that they have available and, and in a reliable way, then people will start to choose to make to leave their car at home more often and so that's that's really what you you can do with a with a network system and so and and a lot of the the things that make a network function are not big picture capital things they're just making the decision right when you build a new station make it possible for the bus to come right up to the door when you're building a, a new intersection making sure that the, the bus stops are close to the intersection so people can easily make the transfer. So we just have to start thinking as a that all our uh, small decisions have to add up to creating the network effect. John, the the also with this COVID um, business, it's allowed, it's induced change where change might not have happened. It's forced flexibility on systems. So one thing is the hard infrastructure that you're talking about, but another is the soft the soft, you know, grunt or power of a system and that ability to think differently and, and act quickly. Any, any thoughts on that? It's interesting, isn't it, how, you know, this crisis has really thrown up something that, and that you know, it's made us realise how much time we spend in really unpleasant and unproductive ways sitting in our cars. So I think one of the things that um, political parties might be finding in their market research and it, these days is that um, that two-hour commute is something that people really want somebody to give them an answer for. So if anybody's going to offer, this is a time when we can just, I think, refocus our attention on transport systems 
in a way that helps us deliver something that people have recognised would be really valuable for them. And that is um, you know, a little bit more flexibility about the, the choices that they have about you know, where they work and how they travel. Yeah, I suppose, John, it calls to mind that saying never waste a good crisis. And so what you're suggesting is COVID's allowed us to see our condition in a way we couldn't before? Yeah, I think so. And I think one of the things that it's, you know, Crises never, I don't think, give us a, a really clear blueprint for what to do, but they do allow us to change some of the things that might have been locked in. And I think one of the things that um, it's slightly um, off the, it's like a bigger picture than just these transport things, but one of the things that I think um, COVID's really allowed us to think about in Australia and I think you know, perhaps in other parts of the world is what do we do, how do we let the public sector and the private sector decide, you know, which bits of the system to manage and which, and how to manage that outsourcing? You know, we've seen the problems that we've had in, you know, hotel quarantine. And one of the things that's come out of those, the report that was just released this week on uh, Victoria's problems in, has been a focus on the fact that nobody thought anything about anything other than let's outsource this problem we've got to we've got to manage hotel quarantine let's get private security in to do that and that fundamental question of when we've got a problem do we look to the private sector or do we try and figure out a way of the public sector managing this better i think we've gone so far down that path under you know, neoliberal ideologies in the last couple of decades and I think COVID really gives us a chance to, to rethink that and that really does give us a chance to rethink how we build our transport systems. Uh, do we want to continue this move towards privatisation with Uber and uh, or do we want to strengthen our public agencies to be able to deliver these things and I, I think there's a public appetite now to ask some of those questions which COVID, before COVID we're just politically locked in. Yeah, but to be fair, John, you know, things like Uber are, uh, are successful because people want to use them and and um, maybe there's lots of hybrid places in, in, in the transport mixes. It's not sort of fully public and it's not fully private. Yeah, I think that's, I think you're right. And, and a lot of our, our research is trying to understand this, um, these new political economies of transport. But I think the, the thing that we have to be really careful of is just saying, oh, because it's brought to us by the private sector and brought to us by people like Uber who are really happy to break the rules and force their way into a, a market, uh, we shouldn't be just saying, oh, that's fine. Let's just see what happens. Let's throw all the cards up in the air and see what happens. I think there's a, a really important role for public agencies to be looking after the, the public good because, you know, Uber is not really there to provide us with uh, something that's necessarily environmentally sustainable or helps us manage our city better. I mean, sure, people as an individual want the convenience that Uber operates, but the problem we have in transport is that if we do try and solve our problems by aggregating up lots of little individual choices, then we lose the collective good. And that's what the, a public transport system does. That's what a, a system that's designed much more clearly for the for the public good can do. We can we can make sure we don't lose that focus. And um, so we do need 
clear ambitions for our transport system and you know, decarbonising it is absolutely the number one thing that we have to be doing. And that means we have to be looking at all the pieces rather than what one individual might benefit from, from a particular private operator. I mean, John, it, it, it reminds me of what President Deng said in China. It, it doesn't matter whether the cat's white or black as long as it catches the mouse. You know, uh, maybe we should take the President Deng's approach. Mm. Well, yeah, I think the, the thing is that the, we have to be really careful when a private company, a big private company, whether it be Google or Uber, or says, here, I'm offering you a good mousetrap, when possibly what they're wanting you to do is to, you know, in, in transport terms, Uber wants you to travel more. Google wants you to be in a position where you're receiving their advertisements more. All of those things are quite different from an ambition for equitable access to, to goods and services, a decarbonised transport economy. So uh, we have to be really careful about making sure that we're, we all are on about catching the mouse in the same way as, as that analogy tells us. John, uh, the AI report that I mentioned earlier, I think this is probably quite relevant in, in the context of the conversation we're having, because um, I think coming out of COVID, there's been some pretty bold and um, big predictions made around how um, our transport system will transform. Um, talk about, you know, the new normal versus the old normal. Now, obviously, um, in the past, you know, making predictions during a period of uncertainty is is fraught with danger and, and a lot of the times in the past that hasn't actually eventuated. Do you have any thoughts around this in terms of whether or not um, we are going to see a new normal or will we revert back to the old normal? I think patterns to try and re-establish what we've had before are very powerful. The chances of us making the changes that this crisis might give us to to move in a really positive direction there are only chances that we have to be really careful about uh, trying to take uh, we, we we could very easily see ourselves um, you know back in a, a system which is really you know, inefficient and ineffective for the for socially and for for the planet by um, concentrating us all in um, you know large and increasing numbers of, of, of private vehicles, which you know, creates the sprawl, creates all of the problems that we've, we're trying to face. So, yeah, I think we have to be really careful to not think that um, just because we want it to be different, it will be. I think any change takes really carefully considered and, and strong and organised and articulate sort of presentation of those ideas, which is you know, what I see my, my role is in academia, working with my students, working with you know, all the different people that I come in contact with, is to, you know, to help people articulate a, a different vision of the future and, and, and turn that into some sort of political reality. And any step in that direction, as I've seen you know, many times uh, in my career, is, is possible, but it's always fraught with, um, with danger and it takes a lot of hard work. John, we do need more contestable arguments about our cities and our future. What data sets or ways of gathering data would assist your research? Um, and maybe just a reflection on, on how on, on how you use data. 
Yeah, I think that that's a, a really good question, Peter, because one of the things that I think we've been trapped in is because one of the, the only uh, data set that we've had consistently over time to understand uh, urban travel patterns at a collective level rather than, you know, small surveys, which are always fraught with um, inaccuracy, is the, the census. And the census only talks to us in Australia, at least, about our journeys to work. It doesn't talk about the myriad of other ways we travel. And so it, it's meant that a lot of the focus of attention in transport planning has been on that, you know, that peak period journey for that particular purpose. And that means we we built a lot of our traffic or tra transport system around tra travel to the CBD and so on, and we've kept that focus. So any data that helps us to understand the broad range of how we travel, and the the complexity of how we travel, and the ways that we can um, help people engage sort of creatively and constructively with that that complexity are, are really important. So I think you know some of the, the the data that we can get now from you know, aggregated mobile phone data and things like that, and, and then you know, um, assisted with with good targeted um, you know, market research sort of questions about why people travel and why they make the choices that they do. Those are the things which will be most useful for us in the future. Uh, John, do you know the program for cars Waze? Do you know that uh, that you can have in your car? So it's a program called Waze. No. And it, it, no. It, it plots your journey. And it also is fantastic because it alerts you to where the speed cameras are and the police are hiding. And as you're travelling and if you identify something like roadworks or delays, uh, the system's constantly changing the travel time and the routes you should take. And also you can, if you do see a speed camera, or you can, you can alert all the other users on the road about that. Uh, and that that all that data is being collected. But probably more more importantly, there, Pete, is the is the um, accidents and things like that that actually do um, legitimately cause the delay. So I think it's fantastic yeah. in that regard. Well, come on, Jess. It, but jump on the anti safety camera, um, any speed ca you know speed camera lobby with me, which Jess, come on. But but <laughs> I, I find it hard to get above the speed limit on my bicycle, so it's not going to be. <laughs> but it gets to your point, John, doesn't it? Of of this massive data collection that's going on, we 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 can we can almost see it in real time. Mm. Yeah, I mean that that data is, you know, it's a real boon to researchers. It's a real boon to people managing a transport system. But it's also you know, the data that that's giving advertisers, uh, you know. The, the the idea that these you know smart cars are going to be able to get to that point where you know, that time where you were out of touch from your mobile phone and out of touch from your Google advertising, you know, minimising that time and that's the, that that's something that that um, you know advertisers and big companies are really really soaking up and you know the, so while there's there's benefits there's I'm also a bit fearful about how much of this data is going to be used and in what ways it's going to be used. I'm very fearful of big tech. <laughs> John, very fearful. Um, what do you think of the role of powered two-wheel forms in the in the suburbs? I'm, I'm thinking mopeds and things like that. I'm always impressed when I go overseas and you see everyone scootering around on mopeds. Um, it, mm. Well, yeah, I think electric, electric bikes are really going to 
and they already are in in Europe and increasingly so here, are going to increase the mobility of people uh, at different times in their lives when when a push bike is is not so possible and the, and you know really in any transport decision we're we're making a fundamental spatial decision about you know how much space do we want our transport system to take up of our city and so how can we minimize that and part of that is getting people into public transport as early as possible in their journey so that you know that's space efficient but the most space efficient ways of getting around are, are on foot and by you know, um, small electric vehicles so so yeah they, they have a, a huge part to play and we need to make physical uh, provision for that for encouraging those those sort of forms of transport i imagine we do and i think one of the things with that they're finding in places like the netherlands and, and denmark with people using these uh, electric bikes and, and older people using them to extend their mobility is that um the, the say there are safety issues you know you are going a little bit faster than you're on a bike and if you're older you're less resilient to the, the bounce onto the onto the bitumen so you, you really do have to um make sure that these vehicles have you know safe spaces and lower speed speed limits you know, on back streets or so, well, the, the the pressure for that 30k on you know, away from our arterial roads and the linked up um, network of, of paths is you know is growing you know exponentially so we really do need to find ways politically to respond to that need so obviously john the planning for cycling and pedestrians is really important um but I think particularly in our greenfield areas within Victoria or within Melbourne, uh, we are still very much planning um, car-dependent suburbs. So how, how do you think we can better plan those areas to, to cater for these alternative forms of transport? And are we likely to see more of that happening now as a, as a, as a response to COVID? Whether we will or not remains to be seen, but we certainly have the opportunity. But I think one of the things we have to really remember in thinking about ourselves uh, in Australian cities, we tell ourselves that we're so low density that there's no alternative but to use our car. But actually, if you look at the data carefully, as Paul Mees really taught us to do, and with and his book, you know, Transport for Suburbia, really opens up this question and uh, really points out that our middle and outer suburbs are not at the densities which preclude better public transport. Well, the thing that, as I said at the beginning, the thing that brought me into transport planning in the first place was the recognition that the choices of how we put our public transport system onto the particular any particular land use pattern are fundamental to how easy it is to use public transport. And we can actually transform our, our suburbs even in their current uh, formation without uh, without having to, to rebuild them. We can actually put in the frequency speed and connections between public transport services that creates the network. We can do that. And uh, you know, my students um, every year sort of show us how we can do that in different parts of the city. In the, you know, and so it's just a matter of the political will to create that public transport system. And the first step there is to, to stop telling ourselves that it's impossible. Uh, it's very convenient for, for planners and governments to say, 
oh, well, people want to live in the suburbs. We've created these low-density suburbs. There's nothing we can do except facilitate the car use, car use. And really, you know, my message to people is to stop telling yourself you can't. It's clear that we can. We do it in some parts of the city and not others. And really, we need to get on with um, delivering that service. And as well, then we have to you know, help help ourselves in that task by uh, clustering our, our destinations as much as we possibly can around public transport nodes rather than you know, building flats at a station we have to build all the, the services that we need in the city you know, around our stations and then and that way we can we can help ourselves build the networks but perhaps john the, the problem is the is the, the public transport that we use in the suburbs maybe if we had community transport uh in 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 say smaller vehicles i'm you know you see these big huge buses trundling around with hardly anyone in them if there were sort of more bongo van type that you know there's more informal public transport in many parts of the world do you think we could borrow from the third world with and, and with coupled yeah. with all the data collection we can get do you think maybe it's the the problem is the way we provide community transport i think there's a there's a lot of a lot in what you're saying there peter uh, i think in terms of that we need to unpack you know one of the the things is that that model of informality that uh, people look to in the third world of the you know the jitneys the bongo vans that really doesn't help us in lots of ways because those people who are driving those vans are you know they're competing with each other on particular roads we do need some regulation of the system and we do need that the reason that people don't get on those buses that are traveling around the city is not that the bus is big it's just that it goes in a convoluted route in a way that nobody can understand and uh, so we need to simplify our bus routes and have them running much more directly on the on the main roads when you do that people who you know able-bodied people will walk further than that 400 meter magic catchment that we try to do you know we measure our success by how many people live within 400 metres of a bus stop, not people who live within 800 metres of a service that actually takes them somewhere where they want to go at all different times of the day. So it's the accessibility that we need to measure. And if we could, we can do that for most people with uh, by simplifying our bus routes. For people who that walking distance is longer or uh, is, is more of a problem, then smaller community transport sort of feeding into that is, is important. But the, the, the thing we have to do first is to um, get that network that gets you to the railway station effectively so that we can take advantage of the, um, the big investment we're making in, um, in suburban rail services. Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au.
Now, John, EVs, um, electric vehicles, are they a solution um, or will they potentially reinforce the established order? Driving around in private vehicles for most of, to serve most of our transport needs doesn't get us out of the hole where we're in in terms of equity, in terms of urban sprawl. So it doesn't. The problem is the, the our, our commitment to individual travel, really, not the the mode. The not. Oh, maybe I'll start that one again. The issue with with electric vehicles and the, the motive, you know, our, our big concern about the motive power of the vehicle, while that's really important from a climate perspective, the, the most important thing is to think about what our commitment to individual travel does to the, to the city. If we're building our transport system around everybody in relatively large metal boxes, it doesn't matter how they're powered, it still makes problems for our city. It, it creates problems of sprawl. It creates problems of inequitable access to, to expensive vehicles. So a private car system is a problem. So we really do need to be uh, thinking about how do we get out of that. And then to decarbonise the city, it's we do need to have electric vehicles, but we need to focus on you know, electric buses uh, and building the, the, the network so that we can have a, a more space effective uh, transport system. Just as a follow on to that, John, as well, um, the other topic there sort of on a similar vein is driverless cars. And I think that topic seems to have gone a bit cold over the last um, 12, 18 months. It seemed to be a really hot topic for a while there. Do you think we're too focused on tech fixes rather than looking, as you're saying before, at the network more broadly? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, we put smart in front of something and we think that therefore we want it uh, rather than thinking about what does it do for us and what does it do for the city. And uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, have been, you know, they were, you know, a huge bandwagon and I think the reason that it's that the bandwagon is falling apart a little bit is that uh, it's much much more complicated technically to do this than, than anybody thought you know I see Apple's now pushing out to 2024 when they think they'd have them whereas other people thought that they you know, were advertising a few years ago that 2017 they would have them on the road and Uber's sold out of its its investment in um, in driverless cars so I think Driverless cars as a solution to moving people around in complex urban spaces is really a technical pipe dream. I think we're, we're never going to get to be able to do that without regulating the space in a way that makes it unpleasant to be a pedestrian. Or you know. So I think we, we really do have to rethink the, uh, the autonomous vehicles. But there's so many other parts of the the transport technology space that we really need to, to look at. You know, a lot of these um, autonomous vehicle technologies are already being built into to cars as, as they're, they're coming off the production line now. And that's in terms of the data they collect. And so all those privacy and uh, commercial issues that we've already talked about come into play already with the, the car fleet. Uh, and we also need to be, be thinking about you know, how do we build these these technologies in ways which support the use of public space for 
for the public. I mean, one of the things that I'm really worried about with a lot of these new technologies is is really the privatisation of curbsides, the privatisation for, for parking of, of Ubers or any other sort of um, rideshare system, uh, drop-offs and pickups. Um, a lot of um, privatisation of space in ways which really I think we, we should be very wary of. One of the things that makes public transport a benefit to the city is not just the way it provides us with the opportunity to try us for access, but it's the way we mix in a city, the way we have encounters with people who are different from us, the way we uh, can see the city as a citizen, as a uh, passenger in public transport. If everything becomes private, then we lose something really quite special about the, the civic space. John, this might give you um, some thoughts about EVs, electric vehicles. The, the head of Toyota recently criticised electric vehicles, fearing that government regulations would make cars a, and to quote him, a flower on a high summit. In other words, you know, out of reach. Yeah. And, and he also criticised, this is the head of Toyota in Japan, he also criticised the hype over EVs, saying that advocates failed to consider the carbon emitted during generating electricity and also the costs of, a, of the EV transition. How do we get a sense of, you know, a proper sense in considering these issues? How do we not be swept swept up in the hype. Yeah, I think, well, one of the things we do is to is to really sort of analyse what it is that we want out of our transport system. And for me, it's, you know, space efficient, it's uh, cost efficient, it's equitable, and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's decarbonised. So to do all of those things, uh, replacing lots of vehicles with new vehicles, uh, that in itself, the Toyota's right. That's a, a big you know, carbon sink or carbon uh, cost to us to, to to replace all our vehicles like that. So we've got to think very carefully about that. In Victoria, we don't have a decarbonised electricity system which would support these these vehicles. So you know, we would be at least in the short and medium term be burning carbon to to fuel them. So. I think we, again, we have to stop thinking of transport as an individual set of decisions. So for one person to say, well, I was going to drive anyway, it's better that I drive a Tesla than I drive my old four-wheel drive. That's, that if we try and make transport decisions by adding up all of those decisions rather than thinking of them collectively, then we will be in a, in a problem. So, so I think it's setting ourselves the targets for a decarbonised transport system and then thinking about the steps that we need to take to, to get there and to, to put all those uh, carbon calculations out there on the table so that people know, understand what's going on rather than just, just seeing the motive power as the only um, decision that we have to, ma to make. I mean, John, I'm, I'm thinking soon we're going to be in an era where the age of magic thinking is just going to be unaffordable because of the, the, the budget crisis, we're going to get hit. But I also want to ask you about many mass transit systems overseas have been absolutely smashed by uh, drops in patronage and many systems overseas are cutting back services because they simply can't afford to, to keep going. 
Is this a future that we can envisage? I think you know, budget pressures on public transport are certainly going to uh, be real. How we respond to those is really interesting. You know, how do we think about what's valuable and how do we think about government expenditure? You know, we, We're in an era where capital is good and recurrent spending is bad and you know, it's easy for a government to commit to you know, how many billion dollars for suburban road networks in you know, expansion in, in Victoria. But when we say, well, can we have a little bit of extra money to get the frequency up the bus and extend the route so it gets to this station, we say, well, we can't afford that. So it's a, a real sense of you know, how do we, how do we, we have, you know, we're a very rich country and we have a, a lot of resources to, to put to, to fixing our problems. So it's a question of how do we, we think about those things um, rather than just this knee-jerk thing of that, that infrastructure is good because it creates jobs. It, it, you know, a tunnel boring machine is a lot different to, you know, hundreds of people digging tunnels in the past. So we don't get a lot of bang for our buck in jobs from big infrastructure but we do from from providing services so and therefore we have more tax revenue to go around so we really do have to um, reassess our the way we decide about uh, our budget expenditure which is goes back to the issues of outsourcing that I was talking about before but really we do have to think very carefully about what are the consequences of not making these investments in better public transport services one part of a, a decarbonised future because you know, COVID is going to pale into insignificance against the climate realities if we don't deal with these problems over the next decade. John, a two-part question for you. Um, what's your next research project? And secondly, how can um, the university research um, or the, the academia sector, I guess, better enter and influence public discourse, particularly in the planning field? We've just got a, a, an ARC grant, a, a Commonwealth Government grant, to look at the, the political economies of all these new transport technologies, to think about how they play out in the, uh, in the civic world of, of decisions about you know, our future, to try and take them out of the technocratic uh, transport planning, traffic modelling and into the sort of bigger questions about what sort of future we want. So that's that's pretty exciting to be able to start that with your know, international colleagues. To, we'll be starting that in the, in the new year. But I think one of the things that I've found, you know, when I think about my career as a researcher and the, the times when I've been part of things where we have had much more influence on practice out in the world, in, in the public sector and in the private sector. And it's not from writing academic papers and expecting somebody to, to go behind the paywall and find them and read them. It's by making sure we go out into the practice community with a small piece of our research that's directly relevant for them and actually put the evidence to them and challenge them and, and engage with them on a, you know, it means lots and lots of small group meetings and presentations and discussions, not even you know, podcasts like this or not even putting a PowerPoint out there on the internet, but actually going and talking directly with people. And we don't do enough of that in, in academia. And uh, you know, that's where uh, the direction of our, you know, 
the engagement of with our research has to has to happen and we've got a lot of interested people uh, in our um our work on avs and and you know, my job will be to to make sure we sort of make those conversations as real as possible rather than uh, highfalutin academic language. John, when people meet you and find out you're a university professor, what do they bring up with you? If they find out that I um, know about transport, you know, if I, that's my field, that they'll probably tell me their latest horror story of um, how the public transport failed them. And they probably will also tell me that it's impossible to have better public transport in Melbourne because we're too low density. So I get plenty of opportunities to try and sort of set the record straight, but it's very hard to, to you know, often to, to deal with some of the, the deep-seated understand, you know, understandings that come from individual personal experience rather than uh, assessment of, of collective um, understandings of the problem. And, and it's probably a lot about educating these people that you're not the one that controls everything to do with public transport. Well, yes, they, they, there is a sort of thing. Well, why haven't you fixed it yet? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, John, we're just coming to the end of the podcast now. We also wanted to ask you, what words do you live by? I.e., Is there a phrase or a saying that guides the work that you do? So much a phrase or a saying, but I also often think about it's a great film from the builders laborers from the 70s and when one of them was asked uh, how long did it take you to do this he said well of course it took us 10 years and what he was saying was that um, any change needed consistent organized strong action over a long period of time by a you know a committed group of people and that's really my understanding is that that's the only way that that change happens uh, that I'm really, you know, committed to being part of that with us, with 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 colleagues and uh, associates in the community sector. I think, John, from memory, the builders' labourers' motto was: "If you don't fight, you lose." Absolutely, and that's the <laughs> that's the that's really the message that that all of these academic ideas, or only and. I mean, a lot of my research has been comparative analysis of cities around the world and you know, why have some been able to change and others not. And really, when it comes down to it, it's been in every case where there's been successful change at the base of it, there's been really well organised community action. And so uh, that's the, the fundamental thing is for, is for the people of post-COVID cities saying we want them to be different and we expect politicians to and technocrats to to give us that opportunity for that change. So turning that sort of desire for change into political action is, is the, the fundamental thing that we need to be doing. And, and John, that, that, that's, you've got a heavy workload. You've got a lot, lot on your plate. But how do you refresh and relax? Uh, I get into nature, you know, uh, you know, just walking, just being, just sitting. You know, re, I, you know, my ideal holiday is a nice river, a big box of interesting books and some you know, good food and some good company and uh, you know, the stars above me at night and the bird sound during the day and that gets me back in a few weeks to be able to, to face the challenges of next year. Well, John, that's going to lead into something I'm going to mention for Podcast Extra, but um, we have this Culture Corner or Podcast Extra, something you've read watched, listened to, experienced lately that might be of interest to our listeners? I think one of the things that is a real challenge to anybody who's 
you know, wanting social change, wanting change at all in in these really difficult times is where do you get any sort of sense of hope? And uh, the writings of people like Robert McFarlane, Richard Powers, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer are all people this year who've you know, helped me have some sense of where hope might be in this really, really difficult time. So uh, Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark, those sort of things are, are really important about you know, understanding that it's how we come together as communities that um, shapes what the future will be. Not that we'll get to where we, you know, our vision might be, but we'll get to somewhere uh, better than it wouldn't have, would have been if we hadn't come together. These two, these times too will pass, yeah? Um, Jess, your podcast extra. As you know, Peter, I've been really getting into my cooking um, of recent times and I've been getting a little bit more adventurous. Jess, I'll come around from your soon. You do it so much. <laughs> so I've um, actually just purchased a tortilla press um, from this fantastic little Spanish um, supermarket and um, have started making some very authentic Spanish food, which has been uh, fantastic and uh, definitely enjoyed by everyone around me. So that's been really good fun. What about you, Pete? Well, I'm taking great solace in poetry at the moment, Jess, and uh, I've always liked it. Um, I, I came across a book, a, a series one, Six Centuries of English Verse, and I bought the book, but I, I dive into it and there's some great websites. There's the Poetry Foundation and poets.org and and I just find, you know, some some poetry just makes it, makes a lot of sense and can convey thoughts and feelings in ways that, you can't express otherwise, maybe in paintings or music, but it, it's just a, a lovely little thing. And there's always new things, Jess. I discovered a poem the other day, For I Shall Consider My Cat Jeffrey, which was written about 300 years ago. And, and that's just absolutely hilarious and very insightful. So I'm, I'm getting into poetry, Jess. You always have so much time on your hands to get through some of these interesting things, Pete. Oh, I just well, I do work occasionally, <laughs> yes. But um, now, now, John, this is a very special podcast for us because this is PX seventy five, and uh, it's quite a bit of a, a milestone for us. And we hope, and we're just so grateful to all our subjects who've, who've been part of the podcast, and also to our, our dear listeners. And we hope the program gives an insight into our times and the voices in our times. Um, now and in the future. Any thoughts, Jess? Well, it's been, a, a, as you know, a very interesting year, to put it bluntly. <laughs> interesting, but also um, uh, I think quite insightful in terms of how cities will evolve coming out of COVID. So um, I think, as he, as he said, Pete, this will be a real record of the times, particularly through this COVID era, um, in understanding what we were all grappling with, the kinds of lockdowns that we were all dealing with at various points. And um, it'll be really interesting to, to come back and listen to some of these podcasts, I think, as a result. I think, just there might be a view that this is the year we all lost our minds. But, um, John, you've been a delightful guest and uh, we look forward to your next research project. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's great to have a chance to um, to try and put in words what I do every day. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Well, you've done it very articulately. And, very. and Jess, you're always very articulate. So, um, dear listeners, um, we, we look forward to producing the next podcast for you. And um, thanks, Jess, and thanks, John. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, John. Thanks, Peter.